The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Hear now God's word from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you have in these last days spoken to us in the Son, in your unique Son, your eternal beloved Son, the radiance of your glory, the exact imprint of your being. And thank you, Father, that you have spoken to us in him words of mercy and grace, that you sent him not only to reveal yourself to us, but also to reconcile us to yourself. So, Father, by your spirit, please write the words of encouragement from this word of encouragement, the epistle to the Hebrews, words of encouragement that we need in our walk with Christ deeply into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you walked in a little late... Uh, You can thank Jonathan for composing a hymn for this little series. Isn't that sweet? It's great. Praise God. It's wonderful. So, um, we're grateful. I'm sure you're grateful, as I was, that we had the time to allow Dr. Fesco to complete his Fruit of the Spirit series that he started last fall. Uh, And that left us some Tuesdays uh, interspersed with some seniors' meditations and a message to come, I think, from Dr. Renahan as I looked at the schedule. But other than that, I have four Tuesdays to focus on these four verses of Hebrews. The prologue to the book, the preamble, the foretaste that shows us really what the book is all about. And the other three, we're going to look at Jesus' mission as the supreme prophet, as the great high priest, and as the eternal king. But I had this fourth one. So what do we do with the first one? Uh, We look at who he is. We look at uh, not just his mission, but the identity of the Savior. If you've had ancient church, you are well aware that the question of who Christ is was a hot topic in the early centuries after his birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Much, much controversy at the distance of not quite 2,000 years. Some urbane critics think that all that was kind of a tempest in the teapot. I mean, it's only one iota between homoousios of like 
substance with the Father, and homo is usios, of the same substance with the Father. What's the big deal? Isn't that just theological, theoretical speculation? But you know that the Orthodox Fathers, with Athanasius in the lead, said, no, this is not just speculation. They knew that what Jesus had come to accomplish as our Redeemer was completely dependent on who he was and is, who he really is as the eternal Son of the Father become our human brother. And the Reformers, along with the early fathers, uh, along with the great teachers of the church East and West through the centuries, affirmed that as well. Heidelberg Catechism 15, what sort of mediator and deliverer must we seek for? One who is truly God. I'm sorry, one who is truly man, yet more powerful than all other creatures, and one who is also truly God. Why must he be truly man? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature that is sin should likewise make satisfaction for sin, but one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. We need a righteous man. Why must he in one person also be truly God, that he might by the power of his Godhead sustain his human nature and sustain it in bearing the burden of God's wrath and obtain for us and restore to us righteousness in life. Fully God, truly God, fully man. That's how Hebrews introduces the great redeemer, the themes that he's going to be talking about. He will speak of God speaking much in this text. He will speak centrally about Christ's mission of redeeming us, of offering up the priestly sacrifice of himself. He will emphasize that Christ is our ruler. But first, he says, notice who he is. Truly, fully God. Truly, fully man. Now, if you look and think about those four verses, you can, I think, immediately see that the deity, the divinity, the identity of Jesus as truly fully God really shines brightly in these four verses. His humanity, which will come out very clearly later in the book, is is a little bit more understated. Later in the book, certainly in chapter 2, we will hear that it was necessary because the children, the brothers whom he came to redeem, had flesh and blood, it was necessary for him to share the same things, to be made like his brothers in all things, that we need one who is truly our brother to redeem us. Uh, But he wants us to see, first of all, that this one who is truly our brother, who can be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses because he's been tested at every point as we have been and are, but he came through every test without sin, that he is truly, fully God. How does he show that here in these verses? First, the deity of Jesus, and then more briefly, the humanity. Well, he talks about Christ's deity in his relationship to everything that is made from the perspective of consummation and creation and providence. And that's not the chronological order we're used to thinking of things in, but that's the way he goes about it, right? Consummation. God appointed him the heir of all things, the inheritor of all things, the one for everything was created. That's Paul's language in Colossians 1. 
the one who in the end owns everything as the triune, as second person of the triune God by the gift of the Father. So he is supreme over all things as the owner of it all by the Father's eternal appointment. He's supreme over all things as the creator of it all. You see that also in verse 2. Through whom God created the world, the universe, everything. Actually, what, Paul, what Hebrews here says is he created the ions, the ages, which typically in the New Testament have as a temporal connotation, the successing eras of God's plan for history. Here, it, it seems pretty clearly to be spatial. It has to do with the whole universe we see, the far reaches of space, galaxies, as it does in Hebrews 11.3. But here, his choice not of cosmos, which would refer to that whole universe, the orderly universe, but ion maybe puts a temporal spin on a spatial referent. Um, he will go on later in this chapter to quote from Psalm 102 and talk about the heavens and the earth as the work of God's hands, which had a beginning because the Lord, the Son, created it, everything, and will have an end because eventually they will wear out, whereas the Son, the Lord, remains the same forever. So he's talking a little bit already about the temporary character. He's the creator who stands over the character of the temporal world and universe, and he stands unchanged forever. So he's supreme in consummation and creation. And then, of course, we see in verse 3, a little later on, that he's also supreme in providence. In everything between creation at the start and consummation at the end, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Why does the scientific method of, of experimentation to test hypotheses work? Why does it work? Because blind chance has decided that there's an orderly structure to cause and effect in the universe? No. Because the creator, who is Christ the Lord, the Son, upholds all things by the word of his power. So he's supreme in relation to his created universe. At the end, heir of all things. At the beginning, through him, the Father created all things. And every place in the middle, he upholds all things by the word of his power. But he's also, we see his deity, especially in relation to the Father who sent him. For that, look at the beginning of verse 3. These two amazing descriptions. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, of his being. The radiance of the glory of God, a word that's very rare in ancient Greek altogether, uh, a word that speaks of bright light, so bright it hurts your eyes. Radiance, display of God's brilliantly blinding being. Exact imprint, a word that elsewhere in Greek appears for the image left in, left by a, a seal, a metal seal that's pressed into molten wax so that you see exactly the shape of that metal seal when it's removed and there's the wax. He's the one in whom we see 
and know the Father. The one in whom we see and know the Father. I just ran across a couple weeks ago a book by Michael Reeves, uh, published in 2010. Michael Reeves teaches at uh, a theological uh, school in Wales, in the UK. Uh, I had come across his book, Delighting in the Trinity University Press, uh, a few years ago. But before that, Reeves wrote a little book called Rejoicing in Christ, a very winsome, moving articulation of the doctrine of Christ revealed in Scripture. He comments at one point on the Nicene Creed's words about Jesus Christ that he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, being of one being with the Father, homo usias, one being with the Father. And then he draws this conclusion. There is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. There is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus because the Son is the perfect revelation of the Father. He goes on to quote Scottish theologian Thomas Torrance. Torrance says it this way. He says, there is, no, there is in fact no God behind the back of Jesus, no act of God other than the act of Jesus, no God but the one we meet in him. He's not denying the other persons of the Trinity, but he's saying that if we have any suspicion that the Father or the Holy Spirit, maybe especially our suspicion has to do with the Father, that he is unlike Jesus, we need to put that out of our mind. Jesus Christ, Torrance said, is the open heart of God, the very love and life of God poured out to redeem humankind, the mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and save sinners. And then Michael Reeves concludes, let us then be rid of that horrid, sly idea that behind Jesus, the friend of sinners, there is some more sinister being one thinner on compassion and grace. There cannot be. Jesus is the word. He is one with the Father. He is the radiance, the glow, the glory of who his Father is. And we've seen him. Because this one who is eternally the delight of the Father, the radiance of the Father has become our human brother. Now, where's the humanity of Jesus here? It's, it's not as overt as all that he says about the deity of Jesus, but we need his humanity. As I mentioned earlier in chapter 2, he's going to focus in on the humanity of Christ, that since we share flesh and blood, Christ also partook of the same things, that he was made like his brothers in all things, that by taking full human nature and enduring the death that we deserve... Jesus rescues us from Satan who had the power of death. Why did he have the power of death? Because he lured us, Adam and Eve and all of us in their train, into rebellion against God. The wages of sin is death. And then he turns around and accuses us and demands our death. But Jesus set us free. Where is his humanity in these first four verses? Well, two places. Let's take the second one first. Verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than theirs. Having become better than the angels. 1980, James Dunn, another British theologian, I think not quite as reliable as Michael Reeves on this, 
uh, wrote a book called Christology and the Making. And, and John Dunn talks about Hebrews, talks about the awkward tensions in the way Hebrews presents Christ. Because he says that it comes from a merging of two contrasting, really conflicting worldviews. Platonism and the Hebrew scriptures. From the Hebrew scriptures and from the early Christian tradition, so Dunn says, we get a kind of an adoptionist understanding of Jesus. Jesus, the human being, became the Son of God by virtue of his obedient life. From Platonism, we get the idea of pre-existence, divine personal pre-existence or impersonal pre-existence, and somehow Hebrews tries to smash those together. A son here, active in creation, and yet becoming better than the angels. Is that what's going on? Trying to smash conflicting worldviews together? No. No, what Hebrews is doing under the inspiration of the Spirit is showing us a person who is really deeply mysterious. And it's true, we can't put it together. Is he infinite God who knows all things and never changes? Or is he a real human being who increases in wisdom as well as stature and in favor with God and man? Who will say about the day of his second coming, not even the Son knows when I'm going to be sent back. Which is it? And the answer is, he is both. And we don't know how to put it together. We don't know how to probe the psychology of the incarnate Son of God who is real human, a real human in every respect. But we know they're both true. And he did become superior to the angels. How could that happen? Well, because he came from the glory of heaven, fully divine, and he became, as Hebrews is going to say to us in chapter 2 from Psalm 8, he became for a little while lower than the angels. He took our human nature in our humiliation, and he has now been exalted to the right hand of the Father. That's a hint of his embracing the reality of our human nature, our human condition. And why did he do it? Well, that's the other clue to his humanity here. It's in the middle of verse 3. After making purification for sins. After making purification for sins. That's why he became our human brother. Because he came to do more than reveal the Father to us. He came to do more than impose the Father's rule on us. He did both of those things. We'll talk about Jesus' role in revealing the Father. A, a word from the Father better than the best prophets. We'll talk about him as the King of Kings. But if he had only come to reveal and to rule, the revelation would destroy us and the rule would condemn us. He came to reconcile us to the Father, to make purification for sins and for that he had to take our human nature his mission was more than revelation more than rule it was about reconciliation it was about the priestly task that our preacher to the hebrews says in chapter 8 verse 1 is the main point he's driving at in the whole sermon the task of reconciling us to God, of purifying us from sin so that we can draw near to God. We were made to be near God. We were made for friendship with God. But with sin in the way, 
the closer we get to God, the more his holiness incinerates us, unless, unless there is one who's born the fiery wrath in our place on the cross and who now intercedes for us at the Father's right hand. Then the Father's heavenly throne becomes for us when we are in desperate need a throne of grace. That's the end of chapter 4. Throne of grace. Draw near because you have this high priest. Draw near to that throne of grace. Praise God for the one he gave us, gives us as our Savior. Very God of very God. Very man of very man. Eternally the delight of the Father. Now, henceforth forever, our great hope and Savior. Let's pray. Father, The themes we've thought about, even in these few minutes, are themes that so go so far beyond our ability to comprehend them. We can, we can apprehend them because you've spoken clearly, but we know that there are depths here that we'll never, uh, we'll never uh, search out uh, in all of their riches. But we know that you've revealed who Jesus is in order that we can know how we can trust him and we can trust what you've revealed of your own heart, your own care, your own righteousness and your own mercy in the sending of your son. Encourage us, Father. Teach us to think of you as we see you revealed in Jesus Christ. May we not be like Jesus closest friends, even on the night before he goes to the cross, who are saying, show us the Father, to whom Jesus had to say, if you knew me, you would know the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Father, convince us, convince our hearts at the deepest level that Jesus, in all of his glory, holiness, and compassion, reveals you to us and has reconciled us to you by his death for the purification for our sins. We pray in his name. Amen. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.